Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And today's episode is a little bit different. I actually have a recording of an interview that I did with uh, Mark Carjula, who's a physical therapist over at Modern Pain Care. And he actually had me on his Facebook Live group to have a discussion about pain. And he was kind enough to allow me to have the recording of that. And so I decided, hey, if this was good enough for that Facebook Live, it's probably good enough for a Straight Shot Health Talk episode. And so, with no further ado, here's the episode. Thanks, folks. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for joining uh, Kevin and I today. We really appreciate your time. I know we have folks coming from all over the globe, so I really appreciate uh, you guys checking out our interview today. I'm excited to have Dr. Kevin uh, Kukuro, or Kukaro, sorry, I knew I was going to butcher that, dang it. Um, but I'm um, excited to have Kevin with us. He's i uh, been doing some great things in the persistent pain world. Um, he's got a website, kevincaccaro.com. I'll share that link in the uh, discussion thread here on Facebook. Um, but he's got a, a unique perspective he's developed over his practice. So we're going to talk a little bit about his journey um, from DO school to where he's at today um, and a little bit about his approach and definitely a lot about some of the pain issues we're facing in the U.S. He's been an active proponent of change there in Oregon and uh, doing some great things there, which we'll talk about um, and uh, see where the discussion leads us. So if you don't mind, Kevin, do you mind introducing yourself to the folks? No, that's fine. Um, and, and you actually got my name correct. Oh, so good. I grew up with it as Kukaro. And uh, I've always thought it was that way. And, and maybe the Italian was Cucharo because of the double C. And it wasn't until actually I was in medical school and I was doing a uh, radiology residency. And one of the radiologists I was working with, last name was Kokoro. Same spelling except for an O instead of a U. And he goes, no, you know how you, spell your, how you say your name? And I'm like, yeah, it's Kukaro or maybe it's Kukaro. I was like, no, 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 no. The double C has a rolling sound to it. So like his name was Kokoro. Mine is Kukuro, which is what you said. Ah. But I didn't know that until I was, I don't know how old, I was 25, 26 or whatever. So you actually got it correct. The, the way that I usually use it is incorrect. And uh, kind of like a lot of things is what we we grew up with was not the facts when it actually comes when you look at the basics of, of things in this case a name mm -hmm. so no so my background uh, just a little bit of background so i am i went to chicago college of osteopathic medicine in chicago uh i did a residency in anesthesiology at the university of uh, university of chicago did a fellowship in pain medicine at the university of michigan um then the navy had paid for medical school so i ended up working in San Diego at the pain clinic there with Naval Medical Center San Diego. Uh, a buddy of mine started their first pain fellowship and um, very quickly I was associate program director there. Uh, saw lots of people, the different environment that you're in, you know, military, you're salaried, so you do things because you believe it, not because you're getting paid to do it. We did tons and tons and tons of injections. We also have the unique military model because uh, you never knew if someone was going to walk into your office and say, hey, where do you want to be this summer? And you're like, I don't know, sir, where do you want me to be this summer? And then you find yourself off 11 miles away from Somalia like me or in Afghanistan like with my other colleagues or Iraq with another one. Um, so we had a group practice model there. So we're trying to do the best work. We have a bunch of fellowship trained pain specialists, again, doing lots and lots of injections. Um, but because we didn't have our own practice, what we ended up doing is I may see a patient and do the evaluation. Somebody else may do an injection. Somebody else may do the follow-up discontinuity of care it, it, it's it, you know what, what people would say it was extraordinarily frustrating because um while my colleagues great people absolutely love them to death everybody has a different viewpoint 
And so some of us were very conservative and we may walk into a room and say, you know, is an injection appropriate? But then some of my other colleagues were more aggressive and they'd say, where is an injection appropriate? So the intention is very different. And I thought, well, um, uh, one thing that if, if your listeners don't know is all physicians are arrogant. I don't, everybody is, it becomes embodied in your, in your training. And so you kind of, rather than evaluate your own practice and behaviors, if you didn't get outcomes that you wanted, it was easy to point to other people in that scenario. So it was like, well, if I had an environment where I was seeing people and I was doing the injections, if it was appropriate for them following all the evidence-based guidelines, then my outcomes would be very different. And outcomes, this is actually this, this is important. What are your outcomes and what are you trying to get? So most of us go into healthcare because we want to help people get better. Now, better for me means this, you're addressing an issue, you're helping your patient improve, they should be on less medications, they should be seeing less healthcare providers. If you were doing injections, they should not be needing more and more injections over time, they should be put less, preferably no injections in the future, but ultimately is to get out of the healthcare system. And again, in that environment in the military, I wasn't necessarily seeing that. Great people, all good hearts, but it, you had some people that seemed to get better and it was not exactly clear why, and you had other people that got worse despite being really aggressive and multidisciplinary things and all, you know, doing massive interventions. And then for me, it was the model. Um, again, that arrogance that you assume, well, if I'm seeing them, it must be these other people around them. They don't have the training that I have. So when I left uh, the military, I very specifically looked for a region that didn't have any full-time pain specialists at the time. And that happened to be in Oregon where I am now. Now there are more, there's more full-time people here, but when I came, there really wasn't and uh, ended up joining a medical group, but being a solo pain specialist. And very quickly realized though, that despite me having this practice environment where now I was that, that uh, the head chief of, of care and I had direct control where I could follow my patients aggressively and do what, what I believe needs to be done, within six to eight months, I, can, I knew my outcomes were no different than I was seeing in the military. Meaning people would walk into my office and say, hi, I'm better. But when I actually looked at their chart, Maybe I had done injections in their back the month before, or two months or three months before, but in the interim since I'd seen them, they'd now seen an orthopedic specialist and got injections in their knees. And maybe a month after that, they had injections in their shoulder from the rheumatologist. I didn't see the medications change, if, you know, or much, unless there was really working on that. And, um, and it was completely unpredictable. You know, we're supposed to be doing these procedures, you would think you're doing them in a, in a fashion that they make sense, and you didn't know who would respond and who didn't respond. And now, when you have no one else to blame, you start looking at yourself. And uh, luckily, I had seen many charts of the military in the community. So having that kind of viewpoint of seeing what's out there, I knew that I was practicing good, you know, up to, up to care. It's crazy what people are doing. Um, but the outcomes were poor. So I go, well, are the outcomes what I learned or, or was taught in fellowship? And when you look at the outcomes when it comes to basically any intervention when it comes to pain, I'm going to pick on interventionists a lot. But when you look at anything, the data doesn't align with what we are traditionally spouting off, and particularly the high price interventions, injections, implants, uh, pumps, uh, surgeries, et cetera. That data doesn't line up at all, um, despite the fact that we do a ton of it. So then, that, then you're like, again, do I actually understand what I'm treating? Because if, we're, if you understand what you're treating, then you should expect with a reasonable degree of certainty that people would get better at least predictably and consistently, and that doesn't occur. 
And then that was the biggest step is I went back and said, well, do I actually understand pain? And that seems crazy to me because I'm a fellowship trained pain specialist at all my, you know, oral boards, all the examinations, uh, was, had, you know, very good education, but eventually realized I did not know pain. And I, and I, uh, I would challenge a lot of healthcare professionals is most of us, despite the supposition that we understand pain, we don't, unless you've taken a lot of time to actually examine what the science shows and taken a moment to question what it is and more importantly, what it isn't. And that differentiation becomes really important. So that was probably a little bit longer than you were looking for. I'm not sure how long it spent, but that's sort of the beginnings of the process. No, that's good. It's good to kind of hear your journey and kind of, you know, some of the, I think you speak like a lot of the people in this group and why they join is you hit that point in your career of like, you know, I was taught so black and white, like I identify, and I know for interventionalists, it's like you find it, you, you identify it, you, you treat it, you intervene, and it should ideally, the outcome should be there. It's similar, like within manual therapy, I know with your DO background, you're probably familiar, um, you know, we're supposed to identify the pain generator, do a manipulative treatment, different things. And it just doesn't bear fruit for some people, of course, yes. Some people, I question whether it even needs to be any specificity if it just needs a pop and, and a good story behind it, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, but it's just interesting, the parallel journeys that you have. I'm just curious, like the military system maybe doesn't seem to be as motivated as the, you know, the civilian healthcare system that you're now, it sounds like you're involved in, where there's not this, you know, revenue-based care where it's all about do you see, do you think that's a big conflict that um, still exists? I, I, I know you mentioned some of your well-meaning professionals and I, we face the same thing in, in physical therapy world where sometimes revenue-based care trumps uh, science-based care. I'm curious how, how you experience that in your profession as a pain physician that, you know, this science-based care of understanding current pain knowledge and current pain science versus, you know, revenue-based care. Do you think, where is that at right now? And can you see those two marrying each other as far as being one in this being able to support each other there's a couple of questions there does does revenue incentivize behavior absolutely 100 percent. if anyone doesn't believe that they don't understand human psychology the danger is if people refuse to recognize that if you are paid to do something it will influence your decision on whether or not you're going to do it no matter what now that is neither good or bad but again if you hide your head in the sand and pretend otherwise that's that's an issue um, and currently, our healthcare system is absolutely incentivized to do things to people. Um, and and that, there's a whole other topic if you're looking at the medical community is how reimbursement has been set. What are the communities that originally sub, submit to, to Medicare, what they believe should be paid and what shouldn't be paid, and the judgments in, in individuals that sit on those communities provide those recommendations. Um, but the incentives are absolutely out of alignment when it comes to good not only pain care, but good healthcare in general. Uh, and if you look over and over again, our healthcare system is really set up in this an acute care model, that there is something that is fixable, something is broken automatically, and then what can we do to intervene to facilitate healing in that acute scenario? But the vast majority of healthcare diseases that the system is treating, you know, 90% of healthcare dollars, when you look at the, at the overall like social determinants of health, go to direct medical care. And that's 10% of someone's health, 10 to 11% of someone's health. Of that 90% of healthcare dollars, 70% of them go to treatment of chronic pain, uh, treatment of chronic disease, of which pain is part of that. But diseases, you know, chronic diseases are diseases of lifestyle, behavior, engagement, facilitating change. And so these direct interventions don't address that issue. 
they're a band-aid stopgap measure that you're basically waiting for someone to have the heart attack. Then you go and you put the stent in. And then you do nothing else until they have another heart attack to put another stent in. And we do that over and over and over when it comes to pain. These interventions that are, the, the stuff we get paid for, in physical therapy is a little bit different, I know, but for, for a quote unquote pain specialist, you couldn't create a worse system for the treatment of pain than what we have created now, where we put the people through a ringer, we drive high price therapies of which there are significant risks associated with them, we reinforce biomechanical belief systems that we know have worse outcomes. And then once we've done all that, when we've completely ingrained somebody in a, in a massive misconception about what pain is, then we dump them on the sideline and say, you know what, there's nothing else that you can done with you. You need to go see the physical therapist or the psychologist because now you have to manage your pain. So it, it is, it's atrocious. And the incentives, honestly, are aligned to promote that rather than to promote good care. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's scary, you know, to see a lot of the things. And you're right, I think as physical therapists, and I'm sure, you know, our chiropractic colleagues and other colleagues here with us often feel like the dumping grounds of when, like, that machine kind of spits out somebody, ah, just try physical therapy or psychology, and, you know, you just got to manage it, you're stuck with it. And like you said, the beliefs that get engendered of, like, you know, broken, damaged, weak, frail, you know, the body gets convinced that it's not safe to engage in in what like active rehabilitation professionals offer, it does definitely make for a, for a challenge. I'm curious, you know, well, how do we, how would you envision us as, uh, you know, and, and you can look at this, whatever scale you think uh, best would do this. And, you know, you, how do we fix this is a very obviously massive question, but how do you think maybe from an educational perspective, I know you've obviously taken it upon yourself, like a lot of the folks in this group, to really read and study and update your understanding of science. That's what our group is all about, is sharing that understanding so more clinicians and professionals can help carry that message forward. What do you think needs to happen, uh, whether it be from an educational level or what, to, to, and what maybe needs to be integrated into these educational programs to help, you know, maybe at the entry level, like medical training and DO training to the fellowship training of uh, a pain physician? What do you think needs to change to, to make this become less of the atrocious, uh, atrocious system that you speak of? You know, ultimately, I think we need to jar people out of this comfort that the assumption that they understand pain. And this works for anybody, whether they're a healthcare provider of whatever your specialty background is, or even, uh, you know, community members, clients, patients, whoever. Become, sorry. I, sorry, I echo there. But we come from, a, a, you know, this idea that we already understand Pain. And I and I, how do you jar people out of that? How do you call the question of that? How do you 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 bring to question um, these discrepancies in care? But you have to get people to actually recognize that there's something that they don't know. And otherwise, you can do all the education that you want, and people gloss over it, saying, "I already know this." Now, I've done a ton of work on education locally here, and I've worked with anybody from uh, you know whole primary care clinics to individual physicians to physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, et cetera. And the toughest bunch, I'll be honest, is the met is the physicians. Because every time I start talking about something, they're like, oh, I already know this. I'm like, you don't already know this because I can see the actions that you're taking. I see the verbiage that you're using. And it's very clear that, the, that you may be able to spout off a line of something, but you don't understand those concepts, what they mean. So I think part of it is just taking a couple minutes for anybody and to say, do I actually know what I know? And if I know what I know, is, it, is, is this path of care consistent with what should occur? 
if this is the fundamental problem. But I do think it, it starts with almost a universal re-education when it comes to pain. Um, should we introduce that early? Absolutely. But I also think that it becomes important to do at all phases of whatever specialty that you're in. Introduction into school, it should be reinforced into your, your post-grad training, um, you know, continuing education, et cetera, because it becomes super easy to fall back into those, those misconceptions that we have about pain for, for a number of different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of, uh, you know, negative or, or positive reinforcers for, you know, traditional beliefs out there. So it, it is definitely hard for change. And it's interesting. We had spoke before uh, we got on here live about, you know, Arizona. And I know Oregon's doing other things where, you know, have the pain and addiction uh, curriculum that now we're pushing to make sure in entry-level universities, both from uh, pretty much health professionals, um, International Association for the Study of Pain, of course, has made their curricular recommendations. And now, when that stuff all gets uh, actually incorporated and an accrediting body start enforcing it as another animal. Um, I'm just uh, curious, um, you've developed, we're going to kind of go towards your approach because I, I know you have kind of a unique approach with your patients or kind of have conceptualized it into what you call the pain triangle. I've peeked at your website and looked at it and read and listened to some of your videos online. I'm curious if you can share that perspective with uh, some of the folks who may not be familiar with it and maybe how you um, utilize that in your practice with somebody who comes off the street in, in some significant persistent pain. So you're going to take what should be an hour talk and, <laughs> and I'm going to try to condense it very quickly. Yeah. Um, because the, the delivery of information in a way that is actual, you know, um, that makes it easy to consume and actionable. That's, I study that quite a bit. And when you're, when you're trying to change conceptions, it's huge. Um, but what the pain triangle really came out of is my own journey when it came to pain is once you start, and I'm going to apologize to the audience out there, but once you start seeing processes and in, in the robust misconceptions that we have, a lot of the work, and I know David Butler talks about this quite a bit with conceptual change. People don't spend enough time on that, but it has to do with categorization and concept creation in the brain. So we tend to view things as a sequential process, cause and effect. I stimulate, there's a response curve. That's actually how our brains perceive information. That's why you stub your toe, you believe that your pain is coming from your toe, although it's not. To truly understand pain, you have to understand what emergence is. Emergence being that the outcome is greater than the sum of its parts. That there are multiple inputs that can vary in different intensities, but the overall picture, the pattern that you see is, is almost unpredictable from those components themselves. You have to work backward from the pattern and then see what the contributors are. And when I, when I finally, you know, you hear something, you can verbalize it or whatever, but when it, it finally hit, when I was listening to someone just talk basically about emergence and emergent theory and emergent principles, and it, all the work I've been doing on pain and, and understanding, you know, going back and literally reading from the gate control theory in 1965 and up, was pain, if we fully understand as an emergent process, you have to have a model that's consistent with that. So then you go, well, what's, a, what's an easier way, that, a way to simplify this and make it actionable? And there's another emergent process that I, I don't know exactly how it, it came into my brain, but if you look at firefighters, every single fire is a process. Every single fire is an emergent process of multiple contributors, from, but from different elements temperature of the air, moisture in the air, what the fuel source is, very, very complex. 
But all firefighters then simplified it to recognize that all fires have three key components. There's a fuel source, there's an oxidizing agent, and there's a heat source. And it's only when you have all three of those that fire it is constructed. Well, pain is exactly the same. If you want to, you can pull out, we can talk about immune modulators and we can talk about dynamic processing, but it is, it, it's key kind of composition. There's three components to it. There's the sensory aspect. So we would historically call that the, the sensory discriminative division. There's the cognitive aspect, the cognitive evaluative component. And then there's the effective motivational component. And we can simplify that and just say the emotional component. But all pain is constructed of those three components put together and the only way you can understand it is to think of pain in those three, three terminologies. And when you, when you really get it, when you understand, it's just like approaching like a firefighter is what, how much of it is this, how much of it is this, and how much of it is this, and where can we develop and how do we target therapies to address each one of those. Then the tricky part is that recognizing the words and actions that we use can both have direct effects and indirect effects. So if you were going in and you're treating a tissue-based, uh, you know, if you have a tissue trauma with primary peripheral nociception, sending sensory information up to the brain, we can develop targets against that. But the indirect effects are what we say, which are gonna affect both the cognitive and the, the emotional component, what the meaning that we give to that person is. So it, it, um, it's, it is a way for me to simplify approaching complex scenarios, but in a way that is very understandable, actionable, um, and even lay people get it. I mean, in our community, we work with our community members and, and they're better at it than a lot of us. Where once you teach them how to start really deconstructing their pain and thinking into three different divisions, they, they can do it themselves and it becomes very uh, actionable and easy for them to use. Yes, it's been interesting in my experience as well, like talking to you know different patients and a lot of, we do interview patients on this as well to kind of let them share their perspective and their stories. because. They have been the best teachers. I think it almost takes that suspension of your clinical ego to really listen to that. So our training is pretty much all centered around that sensory component where we're going to alter the nociception by, you know, peripheral driven technique and thoughts and don't really consider that cognitive evaluative and emotional effective parts of it. Um, I'm curious with, with your uh, patients, uh, what do you find are like the most challenging folks uh, or as far as do you feel like you have, there are any particular populations where you struggle the most or not just maybe you but i think we as healthcare struggle the most and maybe need uh, some more uh development of strategies to help these folks and it might not be maybe it's a condition maybe it's a a, a social scenario maybe it's i mean what do you find in your practice what are the what are the hardest folks to really help engage in this type of a new conception of thinking and, and behaving around their pain. So my my patients per se, the one people that I work with the most are clinicians. So the vast majority of the time I spend is working with healthcare providers, clinicians, and healthcare systems, and in helping them. Yeah. Um, I, I actually limit patient engagement because of uh, for a number of different issues, but but they're not as bad because I have a lot of filters. Once they get to me. Uh, they're pretty aligned and they understand what they're stepping into. And that, that's been an active choice. It's just the way that my, my sort of practices have developed over time. It mm -hmm. has to come with impact. I can work with a healthcare provider. They can see, you know, 10 healthcare providers seeing 10 patients a day. That's an exponential development on what I can do on my own. So I just want to put that out there. But when you're thinking in those terms, I, I'm going to tell you that the hardest part is that assumption that we have about pain, that we understand it. And with healthcare providers or, or your clients, whoever, 
is getting them over the hurdle that what they believe they understand isn't actually true, that robust misconception. Now, you know, why does that incur? Well, pain is fundamental to human existence. And so we've had these experiences early on, and they're very, very close to oftentimes what our belief about ourselves is. So we like to talk about patients and we talk about pain beliefs, and they believe this and this, and, and, and have, getting them to step out of that sort of belief framework they have is extraordinarily scary. But from a clinical standpoint, it's, it's absolutely terrifying as well. When your belief framework is, I'm a fixer, when you misconceive nociception and pain, when you don't understand you know, the difference between you know, again, primary peripheral-based nociception and spinal and cortical processing and nociceptive uh, development there, and your practice is devoted to targeting things with the assumption that the pain pus is moving down pain pathways, going up to pain receptors and creating, and that's where the pain then ends up, which is, you know, 1600 years old, <laughs> from 1600. Um, that threatens a lot of things. And so getting people to kind of move along that and, and to, to just kind of start questioning those misconceptions they have about their treatments is the most difficult thing. Again, the, 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 that's where when, I, when I'm usually talking about pain and I start moving into that constructed format in the pain triangle, the first 20 to 30 minutes of those type of educational endeavors is just calling to questions, present clinical scenarios where what people expect and what is true don't line up so that they start getting that question within themselves. I want them to have that question. This doesn't make sense. And then once they start saying, this doesn't make sense to me, then we can start talking about what actually makes, makes sense or a little bit better sense. It comes down to storytelling oftentimes. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you, you know, we also in, in our group, we do continuing education and different things for clinicians and things. And it's interesting when clinicians are faced with, and it's human nature and it's human, you know, uh, responses of that kind of cognitive dissonance where you're, where you're encountering something that really goes counter to your, really comfortable beliefs like you said when when that fixer mentality and that ability to go in there and identify and fix it's challenged i mean that can be a very scary place for um clinicians um so so your strategy it sounds like is you you know really try to portray you know let the lead the clinician or the person attending your education to form those questions where the discussion can happen from there instead of going head on into with this conflicting information where the person's going to give this massive pushback is that Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, cognitive dissonance, dissonance is another good thing to, to study because it, if, you, if you challenge somebody too much, you're going to get total reaction and they're going to shut down. They're not going to listen to you anymore. And that dissonance, whether it, it, it is you know, a client that you're working with that has persistent pain or a healthcare provider can be profound. I'll, I'll speak from personal experience here. When your income is designed about doing injections and you're making a substantial dollar amount, and then you have to come with the terms of, whoa, what these injections do isn't what the science says, and lo and behold, the evidence to support them. Been recognizing that to practice and align your, your behavior along that belief system is going to cost you, quite honestly, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's dissonant created. I, I, and and uh, I actually, that came to mind because I was doing this big education inter intervention, and I was talking to some primary care folks. And I was getting frustrated because I was like, da, 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 da. And uh, one of them was a heavy-based manual therapist. He was a, a DO. And then one of the other participants was like, hey, you got to remember, th this is new to us. And so what you've been practicing and thinking for years now, this is, your, is the first time that, that we're hearing it. And it made me go back to when I was having my first cognitive dissonance. And I thought I was having, 
anxiety attacks. I was waking up at three in the morning, freaking out. Like it was, it was unbelievable difficult to do. And so I guess going back and to kind of remembering those moments, because uh, when we are altering belief systems and we're challenging belief systems, that dissonance can be profound. But um, so I've, I've learned to try to step lightly there. I certainly don't want to leave. You don't want to leave someone with, a, with a, what I would truly honestly call a harmful belief system, but it's being a little bit more compassionate and empathetic in your presentation when it comes around with, uh, for whoever it is, whoever it is. Now, on the flip side, just to keep your sanity, and if you have organs, you know, group members that are trying to make change in their communities, you don't go to the people who have the most to lose first. You're going to drive yourself crazy. I don't go and talk to spine surgeons and I don't go and talk to interventional pain specialists telling them how and why pain science works and where their therapies fit or more often don't fit in this treatment paradigm. Um, instead, it's, it's, it's the drug, it's really the, 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 the drug, the pharmaceutical industry's approach to how do they change care is find people that are more willing to hear that initial message, work with them, grow the movement, and then the people who have, quite honestly, the most to lose um, in a lot of ways, you got you to come at them from all sides where you're actually changing the culture and then that provides an environment that's more fundamental to care rather than focusing on the hardest, most difficult, most challenging. You, you will kill yourself and burn yourself out really quick because they don't have, for them to change it is a way bigger, more grotesque battle and most of us aren't going to have the, the, uh, the resources and certainly the fortitude to, to persist with that. Yeah, you can imagine somebody who's, you know, like you said, hundreds of, th of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, that are going to be probably lost if they adapt a new belief system, even though. If so, sometimes, I'll say sometimes more of that. Interventional pain has gone down substantially, but some of my fellowship, the guys in my fellowship, within the first year, were making eight figures. This is not little bits of money. This is huge amounts of money. And if you look at a healthcare system, you know, the other part is when you're working with a hospital system. The largest drivers of income for, for most health systems are spine-based practices. And what we know about when we know, look at the injections and we look at the surgeries for pain, no one knows who does better with spine surgery. We know who doesn't do well, but we don't know who actually gets better with it. But that, it, it is substantial, substantial income. So anyway, I was going to throw that out there. You've got, there's a behemoth of, uh, of, of special interest that, that <laughs> There's a Mac, I think it was Machiavelli that said um, someone would sooner excuse you for killing them, their father than taking away their, their patronage. Basically, they would, they're more likely to figure for give, giving their, their father than taking away their inheritance or income that, that is there. And I think that there is something to be said about that. When we're looking about money and financial gain, there are some huge um, challenges <laughs> that interfere with, with discussing and changing things. Yeah, I think the Upton Sinclair quote of, you know, it's hard to get a man to understand something when his income depends on him not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, yeah, it's, it is it is a monument to challenge. I love that uh, advice of, you know, going for the folks that might be more open to change and then trying to tr create a culture of change that might influence some of the folks that are going to be, you know, much more threatened and less maybe open to change at the initial states of it. Um, well, and that works for patients too. I'm going to say too, you're, the clients yeah. that you're working with is, if, you know, we have a, if there is a population that is extraordinarily difficult and I am in no way, shape or form saying we ever ignore them. We always provide them compassionate care, but you should direct as much or more resources to those people who are willing to engage with you. 
because those people start talking to friends, they start talking to neighbors, and those really people who are really challenging and, you're, and we're having difficulty talking to are more likely to listen to their peers and colleagues than they are to you. So really directing care outward and people get, you know, well, I'm not, I don't want to ignore, you're never ignoring them. But if you have 50% of your resources, you know, 100% you know, of your resources develop, make sure you're not ignoring those people that you can be providing some, some, some significant benefit with while trying to focus all your resources on individuals that are way more challenging. And, and again, you're never ignoring them, always compassionate care, but don't forget the people that, you know, most in healthcare offices, we tend to forget about the people that come in with a single episode of back pain. Well, what can you do there that's going to make a difference for them long-term? There are things that you could say in that one visit that can transform their life. You may never see them again. They may not be the person that's coming back over and over again. Um, but don't ignore those people that you think are quote unquote easier, the ones that aren't having pressing issues. Um, don't include, you know, my other frustration is people are, this discrepancy, this idea that acute pain and chronic pain are completely different. Don't, if you're thinking in those terms, there's a whole bunch of people coming in acute with a, an acute quote unquote pain that you can be making huge impact on. But oftentimes we don't think about it because we're only thinking about that smaller, more difficult population. No, that's great points. I think often we want to be that, uh, you know, person who rides into the uh, clinician or the patient's life who's got all these amazingly complex uh, contributing factors from all different, uh, you know, scopes and spectrums of their, uh, their lived experience. And we expect that, you know, that's where we hear. And of course, like you said, compassionate, empathetic, do our best care, but uh, just a simple interaction with an acute low back pain patient can be a life-changing event from the fact that they have an adaptive view and behavior going forward that doesn't lead them down this disabling path that some patients end up with, with maybe what could have been a simple low back pain episode if they would have just encountered somebody who gave them a little bit more adaptive views and beliefs around it. So that's great points. Um, I'm curious uh, with burnout, you know, that's one of the common things, especially folks that are working in more of a pain practice. And I know you're speaking to a lot of physicians and folks who are probably engaging in, in pain practice and different things. Um, I'm curious, like with what we just talked about, you know, with, you know, sometimes with, when we expend so many resources on some of these really complex folks that really in the scale of our treatment room, there's so many things, you know, external to what's our, our treatment room that are contributing that we may not, despite our hardest 100% effort to be able to change. I'm curious what your experience has been with burnout in the, in, maybe in your own practice and maybe what you see around in your colleagues. And maybe it sounds like you've already given us some good advice as far as make sure you're focusing on the folks that can, you can impact and, and change. Not that you don't try to impact as much as you can the folks that have all those complexities. I'm just curious what your experience was it has been with burnout and maybe some any other pointers you would have for the folks watching today. Yeah, so I think burnout is is fascinating and it, it and I'm kind of laughing because um, early in my pain journey when I knew things weren't working, I ended up going way deep into stress and stress physiology and and, uh, and highly relevant to burnout. I kind of laugh because. Um, so much of the focus on burnout is only focused on a couple things. Well, you're going to learn how to do some deep breathing and meditate, but it ignores so many other effort, uh, other really key things, right? And um, burnout occurs for a number of different reasons. Is when you perceive something to be more of a threat than a challenge, overwhelming and insurmountable for you. Um, when you don't have the time to recover adequately, so similar to a muscle, if you're overworking it all the time and it's not has that chance to grow and recover, that's important. And the other one is that the 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 focus on ability, your own ability to uh, process and challenge and develop those res resiliency skills. One of the the 
the, the key things about that is though, is recognizing what you control and what you don't control and being able to easily differentiate that. And in traditional way, the, the traditional way that we present pain, at least in the healthcare system, is that we have a responsibility to quote unquote fix people. Well, when you're looking at somebody who doesn't have a primary, you know, a broken bone or an inflammatory component or an, uh, a, a cancerous mass that's growing, where we have, again, that, that strong sensory component and it hasn't, and we're not talking about, not, you know, 99 plus percent of the time, that's not central or persistent pain. Um, those techniques don't work. So it's, it's, it's changing the idea that you can fix people because you can't fix these things. You can only facilitate change. So it's recognizing, well, what can I do and what's in my control? What's in the patient's court or client's court and what's in their circle of control and where do they align in the best way? And so what we found here is again, when, pe when people start understanding pain well, I've actually had, um, in some of my talks, I've had physicians cry because they are so, you know, when you remove that sense of responsibility for things that they have no control over, you have no control over what your client does. You have no control over whether they pursue the course of therapy that you advise. You have ultimately no control whether or not they're going to get better. What you can do is facilitate that. You can engage them. You can encourage them. You can educate them. You can coach them. That's a whole different school skill set that most of us were never taught. But when you, you, you move from the idea that you fix people to I facilitate care, it becomes much more of a, a relationship-based issue and a give and take. And um, it, that, I mean, you still get frustrated and you still have difficult patients, but it, changed, it, it relieves that sense of responsibility now. When you know it is not really, it isn't your responsibility. Your responsibility is, do I have the best information? Am I communicating the most effective manner for the person in front of me? And that becomes your responsibilities. Am I communicating effectively? And that is, can be very challenging, but it's very different. Well, this person's pain, I'm 100% responsible for, and they're not getting better no matter what I do. If you think that you're going to fix that and it's up to you 100% of the time to fix that, you will kill yourself. And there, there is a, you will have massive, again, I, I, most of us who went into healthcare do it because we want people to get better. And if you feel over and over again that you're 100% responsible for somebody else's results in a scenario when it requires them to be engaged and have an active participant in, that's a total recipe for burnout. Now, on the healthcare standpoint, there's a whole bunch of other things of what you can quote, what you don't, and, you know, health systems that are mandating things, but um, is really recognizing what you control and what you don't control and being able to, to separate those is, is huge. Yeah, we've had a colleague talk about just separating yourself from the outcome as far as not making this outcome be this overwhelming judgment of your success. Obviously, we do our best to achieve the best outcomes we can with people, but if somebody doesn't get better, but you know you've done a science-based uh, you know, treatment and intervention and examination and you've done your best to communicate it the best way you can, then you, you got to let that roll off your shoulders as best you can. Well, and the other part about when you move from a fixing to a facilitation viewpoint, what, what tends to occur when you're a fixer, you take credit for all the good outcomes. And then oftentimes we blame the patient for the bad outcomes because we say, well, they just didn't do it. They were actually listening to me. They would have done it. When you change to a facilitation mindset, it'd be, you become excited because the outcome is because of the patient. And so you're excited for them. And the failures then are not because, are, are, uh, or if they haven't got better, it becomes my perspective. Well, I didn't communicate effectively. I didn't work with them. And that's, again, more of a relationship thing. 
but I'm no longer taking that credit for if someone does well, it's not. It, so there's less ego involved, I guess, is the thing to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a great way to put it. I, <clears throat> another one of the, we've Rod Henderson's a, a colleague of ours who talks about, you know, clinicians need to be able to step out of this Batman role and be willing to be more Alfred with their patients, which I always bring that up to folks. I think it's a great quote and it is a hundred percent. It's more of that facilitator, supporter, come alongside type clinician instead of this hero fixer, but it's, it's so hard. I think it takes a, it takes this transition, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of folks. We've already discussed it um, to be willing to not be the hero and to put the patient at the center of it. And they're the hero that we celebrate their accomplishments and their, they're, you know, major wins, even if it's just walking to the mailbox and back, whatever it may be. It's not as sexy as, uh, you know, locking a joint from four directions and giving it a nice cavitation. But as I mean, I honestly like that much more as far as the patient's wins now because science has really pointed us toward that's really the, the where, what really gets people, you know, better or the outcomes really are in the patient, not in maybe our techniques as much. Our techniques can facilitate but they're not fixing. So I love what you talked about there. I want to get into a question before I forget here. Of um, We had one of the folks in the group uh, pose a question about uh, how you would recommend clinicians communicating with referring providers that may have conflicting views from the clinician about pain. So maybe this is somebody who's still in that peripheral sensory locked-in component of pain of, of that. How should a clinician approach the referring provider and the patient when the provider has told a patient a diagnosis or pathology that conflicts with the clinician's examination. So maybe in this case, it's somebody who's obviously got a lot more than just a tissue issue going on in their life. How would you handle that as a, maybe your physio, physiotherapist who's communicating with a pain physician or maybe a referring physician? Um, any pointers with that? I know that can be a really delicate uh, discussion. It, it, it can, and it depends on who you're talking to, right? And then also requires so many idea of the intent with who you're working with. Um, as I used to be a little bit more gun shy about challenging people overtly. Um, and I don't necessarily recommend that for, for anyone, but, um, when you, when you start seeing big picture and you see people getting harmed, it is becomes easy to react. Um, if you see, obviously, if you see anybody that's, that's completely harming a patient, then I would, I would call them out on it. But again, based on your comfort level and your education and things like that. Um, and other ones is, is just coming from an understanding of, um, how can I help the person and who's in front of me, which is the patient. And so you don't want to destroy those relationships, uh, but you can definitely change the understanding of what the patient is. So the patient said, well, Dr. So-and-so sent me and he says, I have degenerative disc and that's where my pain pus is coming out of. And so well, that's interesting. And I know, you know, Dr. So-and-so is a good guy and he's trying to do this best for you. Um, but I just want to kind of talk about some of the things, but maybe he, he doesn't have the time to do this is when it comes to disc degeneration, what we know is blank. And then you can sell them like the jinky information where we asymptomatic or symptomatic. Um, you can introduce different conversations about how, uh, I, you know, for the, the, the individual is how their pain changes and then tie those changes to things that aren't biomechanical based. Um, from a long-term standpoint, though, is reaching out to those, those practitioners and being appreciative of them. And then you may offer and just want to, again, just trying to get them to question those, those underlying beliefs that they have in a way that's not going to be confrontational. Uh, maybe say, hey, you know, I, I saw this patient. I want to let you know how well they're doing. Here's why. Um, here's a couple of things that I thought were important, like 
then you can send them the papers on how just degeneration doesn't align with these things. Will that work 100% of the time? No. Um, but when you're going from a sense of, uh, you're not, chatting, not confronting anybody, but just providing some good evidence in a way that, is, that makes them look good, because if you can make their patients look good, which will ultimately make them look good, they're going to be a little bit more. Um, and that being said, primary care docs, the vast majority of primary care docs are really good people. Um, I, I've done a lot of work with them. They, they don't, no, people don't go into primary care to make a lot of money. You don't. Uh, they're very interested in helping their patients get better. I should say there's always a couple outliers, but most of them are really trying to do what's best for their patients. So there's an opportunity there to maybe do some education. If you're a physical therapy and outpatient clinic, that would be a, an inroad is, hey, you know what? Thank you for the patient. I would also love to come in and maybe do a presentation for you and your staff on pain and what we can do. And that would be a way to introduce that. Um, and to facilitate probably ultimately better referral patterns and help them understand things a little bit better. No, it's great points. I think uh, <clears throat> primary care has such an amazingly challenging job. And uh, I would agree. I think I've, I've really not met any significant resistance. Like you said, maybe a few outliers here or there, but I'm usually very open to if you can help their patients and be a, a helpful part of their practice that, um, you know, moves their patient in a positive direction. I haven't really met any primary care practitioners who've been uh, least bit resistant to that. But I think they have so many other challenges that they're facing, like anything that you can do to help them out will be, will be good. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. it's, they have an unbelievably challenging environment that they're trying to work in and do the best that they can in the time they have for their, for their patients. And uh, yeah, so anything you can do to help them out would be good. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Well, Kevin, I want to respect your time and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, join us and, and really share some great perspective. Um, from your experience. Anything else you want to close with today or any other? Um, I did put your website on the link here, guys, so check that out. Um, he's doing some great things in Oregon. I think it's definitely worth uh, taking a look. And I'll, his pain triangle, he's got some literature around that I think would be benefit you guys from checking out. But anything else you want to add before we finish up today, Kevin? Yeah, sure. So anybody who's a little bit more interested in, in sort of the way we sort of transition when it comes to pain, or even if you're just interested in seeing how I present pain, because uh, that can be kind of useful. If you go to www.thepainclass.com, so that's thepainclass.com, but you have to have www.thepainclass.com. Um, I have a module up there that is, um, is if you're in Oregon, you, you can actually get CEs for it. I don't know, depends on your state organization and what you need to submit, but uh, if you go through there, that provides sort of my foundational content that I go on all my CME talks, that's that. Presents the pain triangle. It presents it in a way that um, that leads you up to understanding it, rather than the kind of jarring thing that we did. Uh, but that's probably a, a great introduction if people are interested in seeing more there. Cool. I just put that link down in the uh, comments, so it's up there, and you uh, guys check that out. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, really, I'm excited to see what you guys what you have coming up in the future. Um, I know you got some good uh, education. Hopefully, we'll get you down here in Arizona to present uh, to our uh, not only physicians, but physical therapists. We love having the, the, the DO perspective and physician per perspective. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I could talk about this stuff all day. So thank you very much. Yeah, make Thanks for the work that you're doing because we need, we need everybody out there talking about this if we're going to do any amount of change. Completely agree. And, you know, don't uh, be surprised if I reach out to bother you again if we have some other topics of interest that uh, may come up that uh, we'd love your uh, expertise to discuss. So. 
Thanks again and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, too. Thanks, everybody.